evening to you all. Thank you. It's great to be here. And um, we'll obviously be reading from Revelation chapter 3 this evening, Revelation chapter 3. But as you're, as you're looking that up in your Bible, I'm just going to read you a verse of scripture from the book of Ezra. Now, we all know the book of Ezra well, I'm sure. It's um, an account of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, if you like. It's, <coughs> the people have been in exile in Babylon uh, for some years, and now they're returning, and uh, they're, they're, they're getting to rebuild their city, and, and there's lists and accounts of all those who returned and what was done in those years. Now, I'm going to read from, you don't have to turn to it, but I'm going to read from Ezra chapter 8 and verse 15. Now it says there, I gathered them to the river that runs to Hava, and there were camped, they were camped there three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. I found there none of the sons of Levi. Now this is very interesting and we can speculate, well, where were the sons of Levi? And you know, I think it's, it's a picture, it's a challenge to us that, well, had they become content in their exile? Were they happy where they were? Were they quite content not to go back to Jerusalem? But had they established themselves in Babylon? And had they built for a name for themselves and therefore they didn't want to return to where God had intended them to be. Now I think this is a picture for us. I think it's important um, to remember that we as Christians here are passing through. <coughs> this is not our home. This is not even... Um, a, a, it's only a place where we're going to reside for a few years until we spend eternity in our home. And you know, one of the biggest dangers of the church, one of the biggest threats that it's facing is when the Christians feel that they are, well, happy and content where they are. And they're not looking towards heaven, they're not looking towards where they're going, but really they're, they're living comfortable lives and that's all we really want. And, you know, I've often wondered, I've wondered um, as to why these churches are at the beginning of the book of Revelation? You know, why are these seven epistles here? When I studied um, in lockdown, I decided to study some end times, and I thought I would start with Revelation, and I, I skipped the seven churches. Now, I think that's wrong, because there's, there's a great amount of significance in these churches. And the real reason as to why these churches are here is because Christ wants them to read the whole book. He wants them to understand the hope that is set before them. He wants them to understand primarily you are not people of this world to remain and have rest and be home in this world. You are looking to a future day, a future home. And so he, he rebukes them, he encourages them in these verses and then for the rest of the book he's telling them of the glory of that home. Because a Christian that has a correct perspective of heaven is a Christian that can do great deals of good on earth. If we really understand what's before us, why would we so often choose the flesh? Why do we turn to the world? The riches that are set up before us are beyond comprehension. They are beyond worth even comparing to the things of earth. 
But every day, you know, we fail and we, we, we seek earthly things and we, we exchange what we could have in the glory of heaven, we exchange the things of the heavenly for earthly, fleeting, temporary things. And I'm sure this is a, um, a burden that we all have. It's, it's, it's something that I'm sure we're all grieved by, that why are we so focused on earthly things? The previous four churches that have been written to, um, as we looked at in the last few weeks, it's, it's for this purpose. There was rebuking, there was correcting, there was encouraging, but primarily it was, I, I, I don't want you to be resting here. I don't want you to be turning to the flesh. I don't want you to be turning to the world. I want you to be focused and know that you're a stranger here. You're passing through. And the same theme is through these three churches. So we'll, we'll read the passage together from Revelation 3 and we'll start at verse 1 and I think it would be um, helpful to read the whole passage. Verse 1 And to the angel of the church in Sardis write in the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come to you like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. 
would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself with the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we'll, we'll pray before we start. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a privilege as it is to be able to open your word this evening, to look into the very words of Christ and see what he has to say to these churches. For Father, we are a church and we are not perfect, but we pray that you would conform us as individuals and as a body of believers into the image of Christ. And that through the preaching of your word that you would use us and make us all to understand that Christ is all in all, that he is perfect, he is beautiful, he is our wonderful saviour and we will do all things to try and please him. And so lead us now, guide me, Father, I ask. And in this preaching of your word, may it be faithful and to the glory of your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, three churches. A rather large passage, but um, lots of truth and certainly worth our attention. The first church, Sardis. It's clear they're not doing too well as a church. I don't think anyone would argue with that. Now, Sardis is interesting as a place, as a city. Um, it was a fairly prominent city in the in the area. It was um, known and um, was the capital at one point. But it's not really what it was when it's being written to at this time. It's terrible in its sinful practices as a city. Terribly um, immoral, perverted. The extent of which is is horrific to read of. Their religion was purely and mostly based upon sexual immorality, on debauchery. It was a disgusting display of all of man's worst. And in this place we have a church. Now I think this church was at one, one point doing well. I think it must have been if it's a church. But the warning that Christ gives to them is very different. In all these churches, it's very interesting when we actually look at the, um, the surrounding and the context and the history of the, the city, it often has something to say to us about the church itself. And in this case, it's no different. Sardis um, was a city on top of really what was a mountain. It was um, on top of cliff edges, if you like. It was towering about 1,500 feet from, from the valley floor and as you looked at it, it would have been a very imposing structure. It seemed 
unsaleable. It seemed unconquerable, like you could never defeat such a place. Well, it was defeated. It was a matter of a few hundred years before the church, uh, Cyrus of Persia, one night, it says that he, he and his army went up the cliff, they scaled it, um, and in the dead of night they invaded the entire city and overcame it. This happened another two times with other rulers and armies. A city who thought that they were too strong, too uh, powerful, and that they did not have to put up defences. They were lax about their defences of the city, and it was to their own detriment. And it was greatly costly. Now we'll see this as we look at the church. The, the, the first words that are given to the church, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is powerful language. Christ calling one of the churches in the area dead? This is spiritually dead. It's not to say that every single person in this church was unregenerate, but it's to say that, as in a general sense, this church was dead. Corpse-like. Useless in the service of God. You, their works are not complete in the sight of my God. They're empty, they're lacking, because really nothing you're doing is actually for me because you're so polluted in sin. James 1.15, I believe, describes what's happened in this church quite well. It says there, verse 14, I'll read, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, this is a serious verse. It's of uh, sobering implications. It's that... A conscience can be so seared, so damaged, so just completely and utterly ruined that it's as if the Christian is dead, of no use or able to serve God. They are so, the conscience has become so denatured that it's not fulfilling the function for which it was made. This is what happens when we soil or pollute the good thing which God has given us. And this church had polluted what was a good church. They had fallen into sin. And serious sin. And this has absolutely corrupted them. It has denatured them and now they are of no use to God. Their consciences are see it you know they turned to the world this was a church who did not have their eyes set on eternal things they were quite content in their church practice and 
they thought that they were fine and then sin slipped in and utterly obliterated what was there there was a kind of a complacency a, a, a lackadaisicalness about the flesh and the world and, and, and the prince of the power of the air they, they were so so unconcerned about these things that in the dead of night it came and took them you know it's an aware Christian a Christian pursuing the path of holiness a Christian mortifying sin and in every morning waking up and seeking how they can best avoid these sins a Christian continually in confession and seeking to become more and more like Christ this is not going to happen to such a Christian this is Christians who weren't too concerned about their sin and before they knew it there was no holiness left I'm sure if you told this church 30 even 40 years before that what they would end up like they wouldn't believe you but they did you know this was written this book's written when John was alive it wasn't many years after the establishment of the church and in that short space of time it's ruined Now this starts with the word of God. It starts with how we treat the word of God. <coughs> it's, it's about the holiness which we put on scripture. How then we see it and what we hold it as. You'll see there verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. Remember what you received and heard. Go back to the fundamentals, turn back to the gospel, to to Christ and him crucified. Remember what I did for you, remember what you have been told, remember what you once were. He's saying you went off the road so far back, you need to go all the way back and get back on the right road. Remember what you received. This starts with a, 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 a laxness about the authority of Scripture. About what we believe Scripture to say, about the Gospel, of what we believe the Gospel to be. And if we let these things slide, if we are not certain on the things of the Gospel and of Scripture, then before you know it, the holiness of Scripture has slipped. The whole purpose of scripture being something from God and different to any other book is lost. And then that affects the church. It affects the church detrimentally. It affects the church and now the church is unholy. Without a holy word of God leading the church, the church has no chance of being holy and now you have a church which is also perverted. It begins to look very like the world. Its distinctness is, is lost. And it starts with a slip of the gospel of the fundamentals. What we believe affects the practice of the church which then affects the individual. It affects how we are living. And eventually as this, as this downward spiral of 
a laxness about holiness, as this continues, we eventually have an unholy Christian. One who, as James would say, is, is dead. With no holiness. No distinctness from the world. One who has soiled its garments. And so the, the overarching theme and the, the burden that we are left with here is, well, how well are we doing in our pursuit of holiness? You know, how serious are we taking these things? Are we content in the way we're living? Are we, are we happy and not too bothered about how well we're doing? Or are we striving towards godliness? Holiness is to be other, it's to be separate. You know, and can we say that of ourselves? Are we really distinct from the world? In what we do? In where we go? In what we spend our time with? On what we talk about and what consumes us? And where our interests lie and where our loves are? Are we really holy? Or do we flirt with the world? Do we, do we mess with these things? Do we, as a, the proverb would say, do we let that fire into our bosom and expect not to be burned? <coughs> you know, you, you consider the Puritans and, and such a, a reform to vigorous godly practice and the way they're presented today is not truly what they were they were people of most joy because they were holy they were distinct they were set apart I think you see a picture of this in Israel God said be holy for I am holy and they were for a time holy however they started to intermarry and before long, sin had entered, as with this church, sin had entered and polluted, corrupted what was good. And before they knew it, they were not holy. So are we pursuing holiness? Are we striving after it? Sardis was a church that sought their reward in this world, in their city, and what they had there, what they could see with their eyes. Philadelphia, they weren't. And it's a joy to be able to read this and see that they were faithful. That they were doing well as a church. You know, it says there, they are of little power. But they're one of the best churches in this list. Nothing special. Nothing particularly unique. But they were faithful. And what they had, they used well for the glory of their Lord. Philadelphia as a city, um, it was actually established as a, uh, as a sign of love from one brother to another. That's why it's called the city of brotherly love. However, it wasn't all sunshine and roses, for really it had great adversity. And it was a city known for this. At the beginning of this century, um, where the church is being written to, it had a severe earthquake. 
and it was terribly damaging. And really the state did not provide them much to deal with this and then later on Philadelphia was known for its vineyards, produced great um, wine however Rome didn't like the fact that these vineyards were almost better than the ones in Rome and so they were removed. A, a, a city of great difficulty and the same is seen in the church. They were facing strong adversity. <coughs> strong adversity. Verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. The synagogue of Satan. That's powerful language. A strong condemnation. It's that there were Jews in, in Philadelphia uh, who have been scattered over, uh, over this area, Asia Minor, and there were Jews who were persecuting the church. They were pushing them out of the synagogue. They were outcasting them from society. They had the backing, or they, it's, it's, it's believed they achieved the backing of the state, of the local government. And so really these Philadelphian Christians were outcasts. In a very real sense, they did not belong there. But they understood this. And they didn't want to belong there. Because they knew something far greater was where their home was. And they were striving towards that. And they loved the thought that they are strangers and passing through because there is a far, far greater rest ahead of them. And this had fundamental implications for the health of the church, for the way they practiced and lived. They were faithful. It says there, you have kept my word. You've kept my word about patient endurance. Verse 10. You know, I, I was thinking we had that chorus this morning. Um, and, and the three things were to, to read and, and to pray and, and to obey. You know, faithfulness isn't so much a... It's not merely a, a feeling of great faith. It is actually shown in action and the action of... Well, keeping the word of God. And that in reading our Bibles, praying, and then obeying. And it's so simple, and it always comes back to this. And it's almost embarrassing when we see that it's in the children's chorus, and yet we struggle so desperately with these things. You know, how are we doing in these things? We're not facing adversity as these Christians were. Yes, there are trials and that's granted, but we were not outcasts in a city. You know, we have relatively comfortable lives. Now this church, um, they have little power, however, they were given um, great things. So you get the idea of, if you can be trusted with little, I will trust you with lots now how are we doing 
to be trusted with little. How are we doing at the reading of the word of God? How are we doing at prayer? How are we doing at obeying these things? And I speak to myself, I speak to myself first and then to you. That there was a reward, there was a reward granted for the faithfulness of this church. We see this throughout the passage. It's really what makes the bulk of this section. It's Christ encouraging the church and spurring them on in the light of what is ahead of them. He's saying, I have set for you an open door. Now this is very much um, in the next, you know, in this lifetime. An open door, uh, uh, an opportunity, uh, a way of service, maybe uh, uh, a way of evangelism. That's a privilege, it's, it's a blessing. God's saying, because you've been faithful and through this persecution, because you've kept my word... Christ is saying, I'm going to use you in doing a great work in Philadelphia. You know, these two things are, they're not separate. The work we do and the faithfulness we have, they're they're connected. For the Lord will bless those whom are faithful to him. But there's also a future glory. And this a far greater, a far uh, more wonderful hope. Something far beyond um, anything that would be in the city. And the Christians knew it. They, they, they did have their eyes on these things, but they were reinforced in this message and they were established in these things. They will have victory over their enemies. These people who have been causing them so much grief, so much difficulty, who have been causing them so much pain, well, well, they're really they're going to be uh, dealt with. And it's a great hope for the Christian that, that every difficulty we come up against, every person who opposes us, and that's right to the devil, every person who opposes us, they're not going to be a challenge for God to overrule. There will come a day where every knee will bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I wonder if we forget this. I wonder if in the midst of adversity and difficulty, when people try and stop us, if we can forget that, well, really, these, this is temporary and the eternal outcome is going to be victory over these things. The church would have taken great hope in this. They would have rejoiced as they read this letter that they were going to have victory over these Jews. But not only that, and then it really gets to the climax here. The one who conquers, verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. They're going to have a prominent role in new creation. They're going to be of great importance in the the glory of God as displayed in eternity. 
what, what more of a hope could we ask for? That we could be one in the train of voices singing to the glory of God. There is no greater calling than this. There is no greater blessing than this. This is what heaven will be. To glorify God. To be in his temple. To be never out of it. To forever dwell with God and to glorify his name. Now this should cheer our hearts. The one whom we love, the one who was given up for us, the one who was crucified in our place, the one who is God, the very one who created all things, that we will worship him. The very purpose to which man was made, to glorify God, will one day be restored in full. And we will do it for all eternity. So the Philadelphian church, they were faithful. And they had their eyes set on glory. And they're really an example church to us. That they were not complacent in this world. They were not getting too comfortable. They were not (coughs) setting up shop, if you like. They were understanding that they're passing through. And they were ready. And they were yearning for the hope that is before them. And then we come to this final church, the church of Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Again, a church who has failed. A church who are not doing as they should. And I would judge to be really the church who have failed the most. Now Laodicea is another interesting to say when you look into these things. It's, it's just proof that this word is divine as everything you study seems to just come towards the same point that... Well, Laodicea was a city of great wealth. They were, it was built on really the intersection of two trade routes, two major trade routes, and so a huge um, amount of wealth would have passed through this city. <coughs> there was great wool, apparently. Um, they were known for this. They were also known for this um, medicine, a uh, medicine for the eye. However, because this city was built in such a location, although it had a lot of wealth, well, it wasn't near any water supply. Foolishness in the design, and to get around this, there were long pipes laid from where the springs were, maybe even a few miles outside the city, and the water would run down and into the city. However, the issue was that when these pipes transported the water, and then when the water arrived, it was, it was warm. In the heat of the um, Middle Eastern or Eastern sun, it just went to a kind of room temperature. Disgusting. I don't need to tell you what it's like to drink warm water. So the Christians would know fine well what this would be like, what... Um, what this water is like, how unattractive, unappetizing 
and how much they despise it and then they were described they were described as this well I think this is saying that well you're not Christians at all I think this church wasn't regenerate they were never born again in the first place and it's a sobering thought just at that to think that there was a church in Asia Minor without Christians yes they thought fine well they were Christians but you know it says there in Matthew they will come to me on that day and say Lord Lord and I will say to them I never knew you what a terrifying verse of scripture now I don't say that to scare us because the reason why these people were not Christians is because they hadn't accepted Jesus as Lord. They thought he was something merely that they could add on to their life. You know, they were wealthy, they were rich, they were um, doing well in business, they were maybe had um, good families, you know, nice houses. Um, they were quite happy in what they had and well this Christian thing comes along and and they think oh that's some good morals that's some good teachings I'll, I'll, I'll give this a shot and yeah well we'll start a church and, and we'll we'll gather and we'll talk about um, this man Jesus and and you know and we'll we'll maybe you know do some good things and yeah that'll all, that'll all be fine and that'll be a nice way to spend our, our Sundays And Christ says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. I would, I would either that you're cold or hot. I would either that you actually reject me or you love me. It's actually better if you just full on reject me. Now the reason for this I would believe is, well, it's, you're patronising the name of Christ. C.S. Lewis, I, I enjoy reading C.S. Lewis, he says, To the person who says, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, that is one thing we must not say. There's no room for that. There's no, there's no um, way in which we can possibly say that. Christ, these are the most difficult people to, to evangelize to they're, they're Pharisees they're people who think that they're righteous they think they're saved they think they're all fine and then so when you come along and, and you preach the gospel to them they say yes yes very good oh it's, it's great to be Christians and they go away and they're happy they are deceived by the devil deceived what terrible thought what a, a terrifying prospect these people were content but dead they had never come to an understanding of sin this was something quite foreign to them an actual weight of it you know it's a reality that a Christian is one who has felt the very crushing weight of his guilt and I'm sure we can all testify to that, that we all know something of our sin and the unworthiness of us before a holy God. 
You know, John Newton, um, he was a slave trader. He had done things which we couldn't imagine. He had really done it all. There was not much he hadn't seen or taken part in. But he would write, Amazing Grace. You know, it's, it's the burden being lifted that transforms the life of someone who is now a born-again Christian. It's the sins being removed, this experience that transforms a, a sinful person into someone who is seeking to please God. It starts with an understanding of the glory of God. You think of Paul, and he's on that road to Damascus, and he is he's breathing threats, and he is against the things of Christ, and then he sees the glory of Christ. And as he sees it, he's brought down, and he says, what would you have me to do? A transformation. He sees the glory of Christ and in that glory, in that bright light, he understands the depths and the darkness of his sin. And it all becomes clear. This is the gospel. That we are sinners, but we can be saved by grace. Now, the church in Laodicea didn't know anything about that. They were Christians, but really they did not know Christ. They were Christians in the Christian sense of the word. But, verse 18, and this is, it's it's the love of our Saviour, it's the love of God. Verse 18 there, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. That is the riches of wealth, imperishable wealth. Not what you have in your city, not your business or your, your house, but, but spiritual blessings. <coughs> so that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself. They are filthy, dirty, sinners in God's eyes, but they can be clothed in the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ. And salve to anoint your eyes. Their eyes were shut. They could not see their sin. They could not see Christ and who he was and what he came to do. What they saw was just something, not even a reflection of that. Not even a mere glimmer. It was a perverted view of all that Christ is and all that he came to do. And there are churches throughout this country just like this one and we are a, a, if you like a post Christian nation where there are still thousands of people who think that they are right with God but who don't know sin who don't know grace But even these people can be saved. Those whom I love, verse 19. Those whom I love, for God so loved the world. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
Even you, even you who makes me sick, you can have fellowship with me. So great is my love, so deep did my wounds go that my sin, that your sin, sorry, has been laid on me and every, every part of that has been paid for. My, my blood is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. I can save even you. And we don't know what this church responded as, but I, we sure do hope that while well, they came to faith, and there was wonderful restoration here, and that they conquered, and that they sat down with Christ on his throne. Once again, we're brought back to heaven. We're brought back to the hope. We're brought back to the entire theme of this book to, to, to encourage and strengthen the church in the light of the hope that is set before them. The church in Laodicea, they had no understanding of this hope. All they knew was what was in the world. The church in Philadelphia, well, they had their eyes firmly set on this hope and it showed in the way that they lived. And the church in Sardis, they, they once knew this hope and they, they still could tell you about it, but they didn't want it. And they exchanged the things of this world for the glory of Christ. You know, there's a hymn that I love and it's, and it's written by Thomas Taylor. Now, he died at the age of 27. Um, of ill health it made him step down from his um, ministerial role and he later died now he writes these words I'm but a stranger here heaven is my home earth is a desert drear heaven is my home Danger and sorrow stand round me on every hand. Heaven is my fatherland. Heaven is my home. And the third verse, there at my Saviour's side, heaven is my home. I shall be glorified, heaven is my home. There all the good and blessed, those I love most and best, and there I too shall rest. Heaven is my home. This was a man who died at the age of 27. As far as the world saw it, a tragedy. But he wasn't living for this life. He had his eyes set on the glory of that was before him. He was concerned with eternal things. He had his mind in the heavenlies. He had eternities print upon his eyeballs. So that things of this earth grew strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray together. <coughs> our God and our Heavenly Father, we are challenged by your word once again and we see that we fail in so many ways. 
but it's such a testament to your grace that you would save sinners such as us that people who have rebelled against you would now be called children of God that we would be given all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places and our prayer this evening as we go into a new week would be that our minds are set in these things that we would be concerned with the heavenly that we would be seeking the things that are above and living as a stranger, a pilgrim one just merely passing through that this would show itself in the way we live that we might be holy to please you, a holy God who has given us your beloved Son that through his blood we might be redeemed. And in his name we give thanks and pray. Amen. Amen.